0: When John Cage performed in Dallas in 1975, the private reception afterward was dominated by a thin, intense looking guy whose spindly limbs swept the air as he spoke. He was comparing episodes of Isle of Lucy to Beethoven sonatas as varied manifestations of a recurring structural formula. I thought he was brilliant and nuts at the same time, and those two words have come back to me every time I've seen Jerry Hunt perform. I had no idea he was anybody significant. But five years later, I saw him again at New Music America, making high-tech electronic music by hitting a suitcase with a stick. Hunt was a bundle of nervous energy, never boiling over, but eternally simmering. His doctor made him cut down on his 40 cups of coffee a day, and after he gave up chain smoking, not early enough, tragically, to prevent him from dying of lung cancer three days before his 50th birthday, he chewed nicotine gum vigorously, even on stage. He was the fastest talker I've ever interviewed. His music was a personal, hermetic religion. His works and their unique titles were based on a private geography of Texas towns meshed with the angelic tables of the 16th century magist John Dee. Bells on his wrists jingled as he banged endless tremolos on the piano. Electronic sounds would burble, video images would flip as he whipped fishing poles toward the audience. Every gesture in his repertoire seethed with inscrutable meaning. When I told a friend Hunt had died and that I wished I understood his music enough to describe how it worked, she said, no one knew what Jerry was doing. Make up something. His death on November 27th makes no more sense than his music did, but the latter was an astonishing feat of manic intensity. That was um, a reading from one of my favorite obituaries of our subject for the day, Jerry Hunt. It was written by kyle gann and it appeared in the village voice on december 21st 1993
1: yes um hello camille good afternoon
0: good afternoon faith it's a pleasure to be sitting across from you today
1: really is how are you feeling
0: i'm i'm actually feeling like rapturous uh excitement (laughs) and joy uh, about the fact that it's the first of the month uh, me too and about the the subjects that we're getting into later
1: same yeah Um, i feel good you feel good i feel love i was listening to donna summer on the way over here
0: that's so good i i'm feeling like i i have to admit that i broke my caffeine um fast that i uh so boldly proclaimed the last time we recorded um i'm for now back on the sauce and i think that is partially why i feel so good um i had two cups of coffee earlier and now i'm drinking a matcha that faith brought me um the sun is shining
1: yeah i'm drinking a black cup of coffee have some sparkling water with me
0: yeah a crisp a crisp sparkling sparkling water uh, we'll we'll see us through
1: all right um shall we shall, shall we really we get it into in? it i think so um, well, today's topic is one we've been looking forward to for a couple of months now, and that is the experimental composer, performer, and occultist Jerry Hunt. Hunt was born in Waco, Texas in 1943, but he spent the majority of his life living in and around Dallas, mostly, or namely in Canton. His artistic practice was bred from his very long-standing interest in art- esoteric practices in the occult, things like alchemy or the Rosicrucians, the characters like John Dee and his scryer Edward Kelly... Alistair Crowley and Thelema, etc. Um, and his work was characterized by his own ability to manipulate synthesizer and modulator machines of his own creation, built by Hunt with a very specific musical and artistic philosophy in mind. One meant to invoke the divine in an unpredictable simulation of the human experience of consciousness, perception, and pattern recognition. And he would often use uh, visuals or installations to mimic some sort of ancient practice related to this, like a cabinet to evoke the feeling of outdated science or medicine. Wands to aid his gestural inputs, old erotic poems read to uncomfortable audiences, embedded audio visuals enacting concentric circles of memory. Jerry Hunt is commonly described in ways that I really like, as a bundle of nervous energy never boiling over but eternally simmering or as having the effect of a shaman with the appearance of a central texas meat inspector he lived and worked as an artist in texas until his death by suicide in 1993 following his final piece an instructional video hunt titled how to kill yourself using the inhalation of carbon monoxide gas So I want to begin by saying that I first learned about Hunt after the Love and Orbs episode Camille and I did back in May when a curator from a group called Blank Forms based out of Brooklyn reached out to me. Blank Forms is a curatorial group that works in the conservation of experimental performance and composition. And the curator who spoke to me very kindly offered to send me two books they helped put together on Jerry Hunt, who I was unfamiliar with at the time and whose entire persona was often contextualized by his connection to Texas. The books were partners a memoir-style remembrance of Hunt by Hunt's long-term romantic partner Stephen Housewright, and Transmissions from the Pleroma, which is a compilation of Jerry Hunt's work, interviews, compositions, etc. It also has a very beautiful and incredibly detailed biography at the beginning, put together by Lawrence Kumpf and Tyler Maxson, the curator who sent me these books. Um, if you find yourself interested in this topic, I urge you to get a copy because they're like so incredibly detailed They have so much about the specificities of every single performance, you know Um, A lot of things that we obviously can't get into in an exact way here. Um, but it's it's laid out very beautifully
0: Yeah, we'll talk about it more later, but partners specifically, um, if you're looking to just have a new lease on what it means to be alive um, yeah, I think it's very well composed and
1: shattering. Yeah, it's a beautiful exercise on on love and memory. Absolutely. Well, to start off kind of at the beginning of Jerry Hunt's life, um, thinking back to everything we've read, one of the first instances that was shown of, of his artistic inclinations was his mother saying that as a baby he used to stare at the light bulbs. And he was,
0: yeah, just you know, for minutes upon minutes on end. Um, and she was very concerned because she thought that young Jerry would damage his vision before he even had a chance to see the world. But uh, the doctor dismissed it. Um, but in an interview, Jerry kind of describes this experience as a young boy. He, he, he makes the connection between that experience and like an inherent religiosity that he seems to possess that becomes apparent throughout his life and his later work, as we'll see.
1: Yeah, yeah, the doctor diagnosed him as a genius and moved on. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. as a as a young boy, um, Stephen House Partners. This is sort of where it begins in middle school. They meet in middle school, and they have a relationship, not consistently, but an important one throughout the entirety of their lives together. Um, Jerry Hunt was an incredibly precocious child. When I first read this, I told... Camille that it reminded me of like a Herman Hesse story or something like Max Damien he was just incredibly confident he was incredibly smart he was interested in things that um, you know a lot of people would never think to think of um, and he was a, a you know card carrying Rosicrucian by the age of 13 14
0: yeah in addition to being like a, a gifted pianist um, he he like entered himself into like all seven Rosicrucian organizations in the world, like through mail. Yeah. Um, and he ended up as a as a young tween starting his own mail order religion. Yes. That um quickly gained traction. It gained traction. It quickly through uh drew some disciples. Um I think he wrote um that like he he like put out the flyer and it, he wrote like all truth seekers write to post office and receive information, um, and he was and in, in the interview that I read he was talking about how he was like alone in his room typing away his like missives and doctrines um, that were well thought out and like well researched. He would go spend time in the library researching.
1: Yeah, and seemed to like genuinely texts. help people too.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, his dad's like outside in like bermuda shorts mowing the lawn um which i think is funny um
1: yeah um he he had quite a few people who would who would seek his wisdom um he offered a path to the infinite and eventually an older couple who i think was a little bit misguided or confused showed up at his parents house um trying to pay him for his uh yeah his help they were trying to give him alms right they they asked his mother and father for Master Jerry um, <laughs> yeah, young master and the dad was like get the hell
0: off my property yeah um, um, so I think that uh, the kind of structure of that religion quickly melted away but he maintains an interest in these topics uh, throughout his teenhood um, he writes that by the time he was an older teenager, 17, 18, he be- began studying the works of Aleister Crowley um, and would do all sorts of, uh, you know, Crowley-instigated experiments. He would make beetle cakes and do invocations of planetary intelligences and other sorts of things.
1: Yeah, he his beliefs sort of have a lot of similarities with Aleister Crowley and his beliefs beliefs his influences, um, a lot having to do with the will, the specifically divine will, sometimes of sort of like a lascivious nature, an appetite. A version of this is also a popular Thomist thought, derived from what Aquinas wrote about the will as a rational appetite. Um and yeah, Aleister Crowley was, was sort of a springboard for modern paganism. Um, Crowley, like Hunt, was interested in a lot of sources like Rosicrucianism, alchemy, Egyptian deities, Buddhism, scientific naturalism, um, and followed the decadent movement, which, you know, valued artificiality and, and ec- excess and stuff, which I think is interesting considering the dependence on electronics and the the simulation aspect of all of that It's yeah, used in, in Hunt's work. Crowley was also, of course, very interested in sex magic, so it was Pascal Beverly Randolph who started the first Rosicrucian order in San Francisco. Um, I don't know that we see a whole lot of sex magic. No, but he...
0: There are several pieces of Hunt's work where he does kind of evoke... Uh, he, he explicitly writes that he's trying to evoke, like, a sexual... Yeah, uh, tone or feeling um yeah yeah. some of his performances
1: he seemed to be a very sensuous person like in everything that Housewright wrote about him he valued romance and love and sex very much and um
0: uh his partner wrote that they were often found entangled under the the grand piano in a in a bout of love (laughs) making yeah
1: and also just that he was um he tended to the senses in a way that a lot of people didn't even just cooking, cooking yeah. huge meals for all of their friends, paying a lot of attention to the ingredients, the, the sources for them, things like that. Aside from some of his like theoretical or philosophical influences like uh, Crowley or the Rosicrucians, he also had a lot of very early musical influences, um, a lot of early interest in experimental composers like John Cage or Pierre Boulet a French post-war composer and prominent conductor, and also Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who was a very polarizing German composer with very specific ideas about the purpose and intent of music um, and also about uh, like 9-11, things like that. Um, Cage was a huge influence on him initially. He would, he would order music from these people um, in like mail-order catalogs, uh, practice them on his piano, uh, he eventually met John Cage and that became sort of an important um, milestone of, of yeah. his musical career um, and also later sort of rejected John Cage's didactic philosophy I guess while while retaining his like respect for the music itself or um, I guess some of the foundations that Cage laid.
0: Yeah I think I think I recall him kind of it, you know in a larger uh, reflection of, of, of this genre kind of moving outside of it and understanding a lot of this type of music is like pseudo-religious or um, yeah kind of si- science fiction fantasy music mm-hmm. um, and while still acknowledging that he you know has gone gone into those grooves before himself um he was always seeming to try to advance the the genre yeah Penn's was a teenager and young man was enormously active. He had a social life. He researched all these esoteric topics and was religiously practicing German composers on the piano. He also was beginning to learn the fundamentals of how to work with circuits and other emerging sound technologies. And he was such a good pianist that older musical acts absorbed him and would pick him up to perform with them in the evenings at clubs before he even had a driver's license and later he became the piano accompanist at a local strip club. And he really began to explore what it means to perform
1: through these experiences. So in the early 1960s at around the age of 18, Hunt was an active performer, sort of laying the groundwork for the type of performance he would come to be known for later. He was naming compositions after concepts laid out by John Dee and Crowley, like Enochian Calls, referencing Dee's transmitted angelic language or Lashchal, referencing a word laid out by Crowley as having an ideal and significant value in Kabbalistic numerology. He was performing these in front of new crowds, being sort of slowly introduced to the intellectual leanings of his compositions. And through this time, Hunt just found himself nestling into a very specific place in the experimental music scene.
0: Yeah, by the late 1960s, after important collaborations following his appointment at Southern Methodist University as the head of a new experimental music program, Hunt began to develop the response based machines that would truly mark his path in the genre, which we think is laid out well in this quote from an obituary, um, a separate obituary um, after he passed. A central theme in Jerry's work is shamanism as a cultural precedent for the agents of modern technology. A lifelong student of mysticism and the occult, Jerry's theatrics were themselves highly suggestive of cer- ceremonial practice, featuring stylized movement and gestures and incorporating handmade props such as staffs and rattles, often assembled from found objects. The accompanying music was typically produced by a complex array of computers, synthesizers, and sensors programmed to respond to his stage motions. These systems were notable for their built-in random fallibility. A particular gesture or movement might cause an audible change in the music, but it might not. Uh, The scheme worked frequently enough to reinforce the faith of the believers um, in these otherworldly connections But failed often enough to reinforce the disbelief of the skeptics in much of the same way as real religion
1: Yeah, and so I want to talk a little bit about what exactly this means in practice And in order to do that, I want to skip ahead to some of his later work And reference a piece created in 1986 with a then-frequent collaborator, David McManaway um, a like sculptor, found, found object sculptor, painter, um, and also a piece called Gestural Modulation of the Templates, which is a little thing Hunt himself wrote on John Dee's tablets in the translation of his machines. The piece I'm referencing is called Byrome Zone Cube, and it's a large installation piece built by Hunt and David McManaway to mimic a cabinet of curiosity type structure and it's inscribed with sigils, and it's draped with uh, like fabric on the exterior. On the inside, there is an audiovisual visual piece by Hunt, and it's a production relating back to Giordano Bruno's Ars Memoria or The Art of Memory. Um, there are no videos of this, I couldn't find anything, but the book said that it was a, a video of Hunt's eyes sort of mimicking the concentric circles that Bruno would use. And this is, in this case, um, it's a system using concentric circles and unique often geometric or architectural images combined with like symbols and characters to store or retrieve memories from the dimmed outer parts of the mind. Um, I think this idea also fits into Hunt's interest in cybernetics in the sense of creating some sort of natural order or feedback to organize one's own information. At the center of Byrom's own cube was a homunculus. The <laughs> homunculus, of course, being a desired end result of a successful alchemical process. And McManaway, who was an important collaborator at the time, designed the homunculus. He also designed a lot of Hunts' wands or talismans that he used for his gestural performances. Um, in this case, in the, in the gestural performances, he would sort of stand in front of the machines and they would map his movements, understand like the sort of muscular, musculoskeletal uh, movements of his body and create some sort of um, reflected sound based off of that. Um, So as we mentioned earlier, he he later modeled some of his machines off of the Enochian tablets. And I want to try to get into a little bit of like what I think that this means. And he describes it in a piece that he wrote called Gestural Modulation of the Templates. I read this many, many times. I showed it to many people. Yeah. And there are, some, there are some little images I just kept showing it to people and being like, "Do you, does this make sense to you? Um, it did not make sense to me I don't really know anything about music um, But after reading it several times, I, f- I feel like I have a passable description of, of what this means um, So the Enochian tablets themselves are charts that John Dee had transmitted through Edward Kelly, the scryer and it was what he believed to be the Enochian language or the language of the angels and there there are charts containing small isolated boxes of individual characters so hunt describes his system as a ground compositional determinant system and the tables are translated into exit and egress locations uh layered on top of each other to produce some sort of widely varying range for event progression within the reaction to hunt's manipulative gestures and then through the layering and cumulative qualities of the events variations and outputs become interdependent on one one another creating a larger form of pattern analysis that creates a dense web of interactions far from what the ground composition contained Um, i was talking to my friend noah about this who is is a musician very knowledgeable about these sorts of things and he referenced Plotinus's idea that music is a form of sorcery and enchantment And the idea from composers like Mozart to Ryuichi Sakamoto that music is the space between the notes, um, which I think is definitely in line with what Hunt thought about music and performance. And in one interview he was quoted to say that the idea that people go to a music hall for the music is ridiculous to him. Aside from the tablets themselves, I think that we can interpret John D's influence here in the structure of the performance, as Hunt's role being D and his machines being Kelly with some sort of fallibility that takes the communication out of Han's hands, a level of unpredictability in his own creations. Like the quote that Camille read from the obituary, his machines were built with fallibility fallibility as, as a key role in them, so that, you know, if he made some sort of gesture towards them, they might react. They would react in a way that felt connected, but they also might not in a way that felt not as something that was incidental, but maybe as something that was a rejection, you know? So it was creating this sort of conversation that didn't have a real pattern to it, at least not to the viewer. Um, So, yeah, he's he's relying on his machines as D relied on Kelly to transmit noises or messages reflected by his movements or other factors. Um, Literally, as is the title of the blank forms book, he's receiving transmissions from the Plerima. Hunt is receiving these messages as a result of his interruption into a divine space we really can't understand.
0: So I want to look at Hunt more broadly as an artist working with these occult subjects and new technologies, and his outward attitude about this practice. As we've said throughout his career, Hunt was creating music and performance art pieces with manipulated technology. He effectively programmed these machines to interact with his gestures in real time and in tandem with computerized arcane sigils. It feels like he really was scrying here, conjuring an authentic signal from an otherworldly space and spreading it through the room. Yet there's tension in how he talks about his work, what he's actually doing, and the musical public's impression of him. What is actually going on here? In a letter to a friend and partners, Jerry is decrying the technical inevitable with machines during a time in history when machines were becoming increasingly tied to music making, the 80s. He says, The more complicated all of it gets, the cruder it all seems to become, with a slick surface to shield the reality sense until the ghost has gone out of it, or never was there in the first place. His partner, Stephen Housewright, knowingly assesses the situation in the following paragraph. I'm sure Jerry appreciated the irony of using the computer to store and manipulate the arcane magical symbols he used in his compositions. Perhaps this was his way of keeping the ghosts in the machines. I like this, I think it's kind of funny, and I think it gets us closer to deciphering Hunt's obliqueness and his priorities. What was he trying to preserve? Interestingly, while he was clearly knowledgeable, he often seemed to associate his use of the occult in his work as a sort of secondary, biographical thing something that's used as a path to understanding personal history or some collective truth. He says he often felt misunderstood by reviewers who fixated on the occult. In one interview, when asked about the Cube installation, he says, The sounds will in some ways sound like disturbed speech or natural sounds, and I expect that people will respond to these in that way, but there is no hidden meaning. What I am interested in is having people notice that it was more or less distorted earlier than now, or to think, I remember that image in another way from an earlier time in performance with that sound sequence, and now it's changed. In other words, it is the global pattern, the relationships between one thing and the next that is most important. In a sense, every sound and image sequence is a revelation of some personal idiosyncrasy of my own history. In another piece discussing his work, he says, these are mimetic transactional exercises. That is what I call them, and that's exactly what I mean them to be. These objects are not symbols. They're cedars that seed the attention. This is what this is about. This is the seed. Now we can get on to the transaction of why I'm here. What, why am I displaying for you? Why are you allowing yourself to watch me? What are you getting out of me? What can I extract from you? And how can we do this with the convention of the music being made to go on? Of course, part of what draws us to Jerry Hunt is the fact that his work is mythologized and couched in this esoteric, angel realm through his background and the incorporation of some of these systems in his work. If you read his interviews, though, you also see he's really funny and wry and practical and self-aware. He always brings his own setup with him wherever he travels for shows. At this point, he wasn't a religious leader, he was an artist. He was just some spindly guy in Texas. And the primary thing he seemed to want was for people to have some sort of connective human reaction to his work, good or bad. He was clearly purposeful with his gestures. He said he wanted to brutally affect people, to challenge their absorption of musical and symbolic convention. He says he confronted his audiences with religious imagery to relax their imagination and open them up to see bigger questions. He refers to these performances as interpersonal games with tools. This makes it all seem very grounded. At the same time, through his infallible programming and with the occult incorporations, he may be authentically actually opening his aud- audiences up to the will of the machine and whatever it possibly conjures, truth or feeling or something else. John D. Influenced or not, like Faith said earlier, maybe this mystical quality is just something inherent to music. These performances by Hunt raise questions about free will and choice, the human spirit's relationship to machines personal history and accepted conventions divine presences and predetermined outcomes we'll talk more later about this in reference to modern technology
1: so i want to like have a conversation about this you know like what what is your interpretation of jerry hunt as a person because i think like he's clearly inextricably tied to his work and that he's a huge part of it he's the composer and the performer and he effects with his own movements and um, his own manipulation both within the design of the machines and with his body he affects all of everything that comes out but at the same time he still has sort of like a mystical quality to him like there's some sort of mystery as to who he is as a person himself um yeah i mean
0: like i said i think he y- you know w- what really struck me more than anything truly was like how wry and funny and like like interested in so many things, he is, um, yeah. and how that comes across, and like the actual interviews with him, and then as we'll talk about later, like the person, the anecdotes and partners about like how he lived, like day to day, as like yeah. a man mm-hmm. in Texas. Um, y- you know, like I said, I think he he seems very like concerned about like the actual like audience experience of his art, which I I don't know that every artist is always. I think sometimes it has a lot more to do with the process of it. the process, but he, he seems like he wants to like arrive at some place with, in like community with his audience. And I think he says that at some point, I think he uses that word community. Um, I, I think, yeah, he's a really, in his, in a similar way to Forrest Bess, I think I have like a lot of affection for him as like a, a person living in this like part of the world. Um, yeah how do you how do you how do you uh feel about him as an artist and Um, working with these subjects
1: yeah I really respect him as an artist and I think it's hard to do I think it's incredibly hard to do a performance art and make it seem like something that's genuinely interactive or something and I think that is due to just who he is as a person and, and his concerns and values and Um, yeah, I really liked reading about how just totally hyperactive he was, um, drinking 40 cups of coffee a day, things like that. And a lot of sources, a lot of people who have written on him have written, you know, people who knew him have written about just how much he loved to talk. He would just constantly be talking and talking very fast at that, just always had something to say, um one of them said like you know whether it be about zen buddhism or the dinner he was making that day or what he was thinking about you know his next composition he was just always talking yeah Um, and i find that to be like a very refreshing quality um but played out in his work like i think i think what you just said is a very very important part of why it makes his performance art work is because when i see performance art now generally I do not like it, and I think that that's due to a sort of, like, navel-gazing quality that so many of the artists have by doing some sort of performance piece, um, and the entire time it's about the process of them doing that performance piece. It's not about an engagement, and Jerry Hunt is concerned. Actually, this is a good time to read. Um, I was not knowing how this was going to fit in here but I, I feel like this is a good time to read the the cowtail up oh, syndrome yes. piece from jerry hunt where he says i think many of the problems of art from about 1960 belong to what i call the cow tail up syndrome if you watch the cow and it urinates it lifts its tail and there is this stream of hot urine that comes out after a while it's over and the tail comes down it seems to me that most current art is of this kind tail comes up There's a flow. Everyone watches the flow, estimates the quantity and the look of the flow. The tail goes down. That was a piece. And in a little while, another one comes up and it urinates in a different color, a different quantity. The only thing that characterizes it is its continuity and the fact that you can perceive it as it is happening. You showed up and you left. It seems to me that people like Phil Glass and Robert Wilson don't solve this problem at all. Pina Bausch doesn't either. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think that that's like a... I don't know, a a good example of sort of how Jerry Hunt writes and being critical, but not from like a personal standpoint, just sort of like not understanding what, why other people are doing it in the way that they are. And I, I guess when I first read that, I wasn't entirely sure what he meant, but now that we're talking about this, I think, yeah, the, the like physical act of an artist doing their art or performing their art and then just stopping is like, when it's not couched in a, like, concern with the interaction they're having or with what they're intuiting or being told by, um, you know, what they're putting out into the world, I I think that it becomes much less interesting. And I've experienced this many times myself, like, watching a performance piece or something and just being like, I don't – there's nothing here for me, you know? Like – yeah, it's, like, more, like, aesthetics or yeah. just, like, a spectacle, maybe. Right, like, seeing the artists turn inward on themselves and knowing that they're not thinking of what's going to happen next or, like, they're not thinking of some sort of variable outside of themselves, right? Like, I think that the fact that Jerry's work focuses so much or is, is so um, defined by variables outside of himself, by, by things that are sort of he enacts and then they enact upon him. Yeah. And it's an active conversation between those things. And yeah, I don't know. I think I just think that you can sort of feel. It it's very philosophical in that way. Yeah, yeah definitely.
0: And it's exciting. Um unrelated, but it's something that endeared me to him because I can picture it so clearly and I've seen the type of people you know, in this place in their lives that it describes, but he, he's talking about, like, the music industry and art and what it means to be, like, doing this thing, puttering around in Texas. But then he kind of talks about, brings it back to the audience and the people who kind of he, he seems to resonate with. And he's talking about young people specifically and that teenagers, they don't usually care. They feel that he hasn't found many that connect with him. But the demographic that, you know, he sees turn up at all the shows are young men 19 to like 30 33 or something and those are the people who kind of like ogle him after shows like wanting to approach him and he said that his friend thinks that what it is is that they're at a point in their life when very soon they're going to have to go to school select a career or something like that and like the convention is that most often they're like really extreme choices to like choose a life when you're a young person he says that you must either take drugs and live in the street and maybe end up a bum in a drug rehabilitation center if you freak out too far at one end or you're going to have to use the missionary position produce two two children three cars and a mortgage in the other extreme but they just look at me and they think well look at that old fart he's kind of just buggering along (laughs) he hasn't lost all his marbles yet and he seems like he's kind of having a good time there are options in this life well i guess now there's also the extreme option of like being a girl boss with a lifestyle and a tech job but i just think that's so inspiring and so true
1: right i mean when you read about him it never seems like it was a choice that he made it was just like i I don't know when you're rosicrucian at 13 years old you know like you have (laughs) leading your own religion (laughs) yeah you have like a path laid out for you and it's one of i don't know like divine confusion or something like he yeah he still
0: had when you're staring at light bulbs as an infant and you're yeah. gay like you're you're already so outside of the convention of like
1: yeah 1950s texas different right Different paths um yeah he had like the same logistical problems as everyone they didn't part of why he stayed in texas for so long is just because of money you know like as an experimental musician um who for the most part, is still sort of flying under the radar, even though he had a very important position in the experimental music community. He wasn't particularly well-known outside of it. Um, yeah. No, and
0: another note that's so true, and not not to bring it back to this article, but I really got a kick out of reading it, but on the subject of living in Texas, he, he basically just says, like, I've always been i've never left because it's always been relatively comfortable and i've just been sort of generally afraid to go anyplace else yeah which i think i mean i relate to that <laughs> uh very uh, severely um and then he goes on to say that all you hear in these interviews with composers and artists that that like he basically talks about like they're they're writing a fantasy about themselves like jet setting and yeah you, you know making music or doing art in these like far off reaches Mm -hmm. and and he's kind of like making fun of them and is like well they don't do they do they even have time to shit and then he says that's kind of like the most important thing is like shitting (laughs) which obviously he's being crass and ridiculous but i think it it's illustrative of him being kind of like a kind of like funny and deadpan and like person who like really values like his relationships and yeah, um, kind of like the minutiae of like puttering around.
1: Um, yeah, I, I like that he has like a, a crass sense of humor that makes me clutch my pearls a little bit. Um, and he turns <laughs> from <laughs> he turns from that so quickly to producing like very strange, the and most and silent esoteric whisperings yeah. from like the angel realm. Um, I wanted to read this this quote from Michael Shell about him and his his relationship to Texas if that's okay. Yeah, um Michael Shell, who is actually another Texas artist composer from Waco, which you know Jerry Hunt is also from Waco. Um, he wrote about Jerry Hunt after his death in something called "Unlikely Persona," which was, uh, I believe, it was an article published in Music Works Edition sixty-five, but I'm not sure if I'm remembering that cl- uh, correctly. Um. Anyhow, he says. On one hand, his personal letters are filled with complaints about the provincialism and social conservatism of Texas. This is, after all, a state possessed of endless pride and self-importance, despite being an object of ridicule from other Americans as pompous and unsophisticated. Jerry liked to grumble about Texas's natural hazards as well, the summer heat, winter cold, spring tornadoes, and autumn hail. His property was home to a host of snakes, scorpions, termites, and fire ants, and he frequently complained about the difficulty of keeping his home's air intakes free of every kind of flying insect. Countering this was Jerry's sincere personal link to Texas, the kind characteristic of Texas natives bound to its vast landscape of rolling hills, its characteristic brick houses, ubiquitous grain elevators, seedy rural gas stations, and even the tiny roadside towns look identical on first glance, but reveal their own individual character when you examine them close up. Jerry included the names of many obscure Texas towns in his composition titles, and at one point planned but never composed an opera based on the life of LBJ, Texas's most famous native son. Jerry's ties to Texas, his almost animistic relationship to his environment, and his interest in the strong personal emotions associated with the memory of a particular place or thing, all reflect his lifelong preoccupation with mysticism. Um, Damn. Yeah, that's what Michael Shell had to say about it. And I, I really like that. I think just associating mysticism with his like sort of tenuous relationship with living in Texas, because that feels pretty accurate to how a lot of people feel about Texas, even the the ones that really like it, like us, you know, like we we can certainly admit that there are problems and the culture here at times feels very tense. Yeah. Um, you know, it's easy to... Like, yeah, sometimes I don't want to leave my house, <laughs> especially in the hot months. Yeah. Um, people tend to like also romanticize small-town life, but at, at this point, you know, Jerry Hunt was living with Stephen Housewright as a gay man in Texas, and that was not the sort of thing that you could necessarily do openly then. Um, and Jerry Hunt, in his writing, I don't think, at least from what I've read, has not talked about it as much as Stephen Housewright did, but Housewright faced um plenty of of hardships because of that he lost his job he you know had a lot more outward stress than it seems jerry hunt did um yeah he he also talked about different people he knew in the area like towards
0: the height of the aids crisis and yeah you know just how that impacted them and everything so y- you know yeah he does have a more detailed sort of record of that aspect of their lives together but it was you know transgressive and kind of powerful that they did they did have that life together
1: yeah um do you want to talk about Stephen Housewright a little bit yeah i would love to i i i thought partners was really really beautiful and i don't often read like memoirs or autobiographies or biographies or things like that but partners was kind of all of that wrapped up in one like it's it started after um jerry hunt died stephen housewright wrote partners as an exercise to remember him um and i think he originally made several copies and had them sent out to like close friends and family people who also miss jerry but eventually they got it published through through blank forms and now it's immortalized in this very sweet and loving um yeah just like experiment on memory totally um and something that just struck me is like the sort of equalizing effect that memory has on a life, you know. Like I, I was very struck by the fact that Stephen Housewright and his relationship with Jerry talks about everything with equal importance. Whether it's like something funny that their dog did that that you know another family laughed at or something, or whether it's the death of their parents, he's like everything. He's just internalizing and categorizing and putting out there as if it's all just you know. Of, yeah, just, like... Equal importance and monument. Yeah, because... like, the
0: procession of, like, a life together.
1: Right, because when you're looking back at it, like, it really is, you know? Like, it's it's the perception that others have on you. It's the perception you guys have on yourselves. It's the very difficult things, but it's also the way that you get through the day-to-day together. The rhythms of your... Yeah, I really liked
0: the way that he described the way that they lived their life together especially as they age and especially in those like banal like moments where you know he he would spend his evenings kind of like listening to classical music and drinking wine and reading reading gardening yeah and jerry would be in the other room like working on his music or cooking yeah and they'd kind of give each other space and to like create things and, and have an output outside of each other yeah and then they would like you know kind of be encouraging and come together in these like quieter moments and Mm -hmm. um yeah it really it really touched a nerve like what it means to live a life with someone and what it means to love somebody through like the the casual and devastating monuments that like Mm -hmm. we're all you know destined to experience as our lives go on um and you can, you can see, like, a genuine, like, respect and admiration and, mm-hmm. like, you know, honesty about, like, the way that they interacted with each other. And it wasn't always, like, perfect or anything. Yeah. But it was, it, it's, like, a remarkable story that they were able to, like, know each other as boys and then just continue through, like, all these, you know, go on trips to Holland for Jerry's esoteric performances they had
1: like a magazine they wrote together called lacasis in when they were middle or high school
0: 14 year olds that they distributed to their relatives it's just so sweet it's so it's so sweet it it made me like have a renewed respect for like memoir as a or autobiography is like a a genre because i think i don't it's not the first thing i usually pick up but i think when done well in like you said the way that he places equal importance on these different things like it's very like like astonishing to read something like that
1: right I think I think a part of the reason um I like it so much too and this is something that Stephen Housewright says in an interview about partners he says something about how you know he was a librarian for the majority of his life and so he was an avid reader and he says something about how although he was constantly reading he wasn't a writer and I think that that's clear and not in not in a negative sense at all or or not as a criticism of his work but just as we're reading this not like someone talking about their life trying to make it artistic it's just it's like reading a letter from a friend you know it's not he's not um I don't know conflating the things that happen in his life to some sort of grand artistic scheme it just is he's not doing the thing that Jerry was criticizing where
0: he's like Yeah They're they're spinning these narratives About their process And their lives as artists It was like very You know sparse And You know beautiful to read In its own right
1: Yeah and they're both Really doing experiments With memory In in these two like Or in in all of Jerry's work And then this Partners Which is To my knowledge The only thing Stephen Housewright Has put out um, Where Jerry Hunt is doing this sort of, like, memory palace, location of memories, Giordano-Bruno thing, um, trying to locate memories within sounds and, and, you know, letting different reactions bring up different things, and then, uh, Stephen Housewright is doing sort of like a, a Proustian lay it all down, let those things lead you to other things, find them by, like, the candlelight, you know, like, you're, you're looking through your own mind, and... Things are not organized. They're they're simply like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, like laid out across years and years and years, and it takes you looking through it all, writing it all down. Um, and I think that that's seen in like the way that he writes about their relationship too, because he writes about house right how he likes to look at old photos and stuff like that. He loves to sit down and just, and like look at old photos with Jerry and like think about their memories. And he liked to do that with Jerry's mom and stuff. And Jerry was like, it's a waste of time. I don't like doing that, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's just a different in a difference in like where you store things or something.
0: Like seeing themselves in a way as machines, like as these like systems that are creating outputs and kind of interacting with their environments in different ways. Um,
1: yeah. Um after the first like several chapters I wrote out what I thought about them as characters. Um just like as people were just being introduced to. And I wrote a lot about how much I appreciated how like sentimental and honest Stephen Housewright was because I really relate to that. Um Yeah, oh my and gosh. And I yeah. I think it's because, you know, he did this as a an exercise in remembering Jerry but the way that he's just like tethered to him the way that they're tethered to each other throughout their entire lives and like keep yeah. coming back to each other and and there's no like center for their relationship it's just i actually wrote down in my notes reminds me of that silver jews lyric in space there's no center we're always off to the side it's like they just cry, <laughs> jesus christ they just their whole lives are sort of like oriented as to where the other person is you know um and I always admire that sort of love because it's something that's very, um, it's very like messy and difficult to understand. It's just like a fact or something. Like they knew each other for so long that it it becomes they become inextricable from each other. And writing about Jerry, I just wrote about you know his fast lifestyle and how people like that. I think part of what makes him such a successful artist is that people who are that confident and exuberant and who who are just willing to put so much of themselves out there it's really easy for people to like bounce themselves off on you know like he's an enticing artist but he's not also an enticing person and he kind of just has to like stand alone and let other people project themselves onto him try to understand what it is that he's interpreting that they don't understand yeah um yeah I don't know that's like a common thing for very Uh, funny outlandish people to to become is just like a a totem of other people's desires like you said about the young the young men coming to see his show totally and
0: in in a lot of the reviews of him too like you know steven describes him as this like magnetic character in every situation they're in but uh he, he also says that he kind of like in his own way like quietly courted the mystique that was like built around him yeah and i think with the sense of humor that he evidently had, um, even in like some of the absurd aspects of his performances, you can see that like he, pro- you know, maybe there was an awareness of like himself in those spaces as like this yeah, vehicle, definitely for like energy.
1: I also think although Jerry Hunt was not as maybe like openly sentimental or willingly to willing to engage with um, like the nostalgia of sentimentality in the way that Stephen Housewright was, he was still. He, he could be a bit, like, boisterous and seemed to have a bit of a temper, but he also had a lot of sweetness to him, and that came out in, like, the letters that... Yeah, um, I was gonna say. Yeah, like, there there was one that was really nice where he was, like, uh in Europe, I think, and sent a letter that was, like, you know, give the dog a big kiss and give yourself a big kiss, too. I, I, miss, I miss you guys. You. I miss sitting by the fire with you guys and stuff. Just-
0: yeah, well, I mean, and, and this is probably, like, a time-oriented thing too but i think even then like anybody who maintains that many cherished friendships over a long period of time and maintains like a, a dogged correspondence through letters is like i think that reveals like a quality of like sentimentality or um or, like, sensitivity mm-hmm. um if not sen- sentimentality i mean there's an interesting part of partners where quick aside it, it's one of their final moments together where one of the final moments we're allowed to see of them together and and uh, jerry's really sick and he's dwindling and they know he has cancer and stephen kind of puts his belt on him for him and he's mm-hmm. like i love you so much like if this doesn't show you show you like if this is not love then like what is and then uh, jerry was just kind of like there's no need for the sentimentality <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm pretty sure he um and, and just life not far after that but it, at least yeah. I, I you know it shows their differences but i think it, it it's just like a different way of operating um, yeah
1: well there's there's one scene too um i i don't know exactly where it was but before jerry hunt's suicide there were many many years of just decreasing health um a lot of health scares there was one point where they had to drive Jerry to the hospital because he was not breathing, um, not getting breaths out. And Stephen Housewright wrote that, you know, they had a moment in the car because they, they sort of thought that things were ending where they were like, you know, yeah. you're everything to me. You mean so much to me. My life uh, would not be what it is without you and all sorts of things. And Housewright is like, we did it then and we did not have to do it ever again. Like they got out what they needed to get out in yeah. anticipation of the end, just knowing simply that it was coming yeah I liked
0: I liked that they
1: did that and I liked the way
0: they lived and I liked that Jerry kind of made the choice not to go down as he called the dark path of like you know failed radiation and like sterile hospitalization and he kind of like made a choice to live with a higher quality of life and like enjoy his the people around him until yeah he couldn't anymore and I I think like the whole arc of their story too like you know, them exercising together at the YMCA, you know, caring for each other, but also just, like, the the urgency with which Jerry put out art and, like, mm-hmm. lived and kind of did different things, like, I don't, I don't know, like, it's, it, it, it made me, I, like, I read it when I was, like, in a depressive period due to various things, but I think it, like, you should I think all of you should read partners because it'll like remind you to like live in like a more urgent way I think
1: yeah and just to give credit to yourself for like experiencing all of the things that you experience you know like it I I feel like after partners I took inventory of my life in a way and also because uh, I recently lost my dog which like caused me to think about a lot of the memories that I had with her and it just I like just thinking about that and how long she had been in my life sort of in the same way. I was just writing things down and realizing like just the enormity of my relationship with her, which I had not realized prior. Yeah. And it's like, it's not strange that it all happened. It's just strange that I was there for all of it. (laughs) Like, I don't, I hardly remember it, you know, like it's just, I was just a girl and you know, Stephen house, He was just a boy, but he has such a, strong grip because that's what love does to you it like it makes everything vivid um it, it like
0: gives a witness to the yeah. small things that you can then see are so meaningful and
1: right it's like a third presence in your relationship with a person
0: when he's talking about his own dog dying that dog that they would bring to yeah. the the, house, the farm in can- canton from dallas and like the, i picture i don't know what kind he was but i picture a little cocker spaniel but just like yeah you're there are so many phases in your life where pe- people or dogs or something like they suddenly they're just gone and it, like yeah. when they exit an era ends or there's like some sort of like greater shift and like you really see that i mean you know that through lived experience but like in like a slim relatively slim 300 page like text about like two people's lives together you really see that and it like makes you appreciate yeah the, the things in your life even even more as long as you have them
1: yeah I I definitely think it's it's absolutely possible to not take people for granted while you have them I but I do think that when a relationship has ended whether it be from death or distance or whatever there's a sort of thing that you can only access then when you realize you know I didn't I wasn't aware of how you made yourself known to me in that time you know oh yeah it's you, you feel the absence more famously yeah. died on November 27, 1993, after recording How to Kill Yourself Using the Inhalation of Carbon Monoxide Gas, which was an instructional video intended for others with diseases that would soon end their life. Um, Hunt, in the same way that he did extensive research for everything, he did extensive research on end-of-life care after being diagnosed with late-stage lung cancer that he knew would eventually take his life, probably sooner rather than later. Um, just following years of deep discomfort and pain regarding his breathing not being able to do things by himself anymore Um, the video touches on sort of like the logistics of the suicide whether it's from leaving notes for those who might find the body to leaving written statements denying the liability of the companies or retailers that might have provided him with a carbon monoxide tank Um, he's covering his bases yeah he did it in an uh it feels like perverse to call it pragmatic but he was doing it from a place where he was like no i genuinely want you know end of life care itself can be kind of perverse sticking people in institutions where they have no say um
0: undergoing treatments that are soul-sucking and damaging yeah
1: to like welfare no no it, like he it, it was very earnest and he yeah he clearly did it out of necessity but there's, the video is not, uh, to my knowledge, available. I, I searched for it, but I could not find the video piece. Um, I did, however, find excerpts of him talking, um, or a transcript of it, in which he says, So in a way, when you make a tape like this, you can't avoid some philosophy, can you? I think I have to say, don't go too soon, but don't wait too long. Because this question of having the strength to turn the handle is not a joke. If you've considered this, you know what I'm talking about. I read this while I was in North Star Mall at 9pm, and the Uh... mall was closing, and they were mopping (laughs) the floors, and the Forever 21 was being caged up, and I was sitting in like a very deep chair, and I found it very hard to get up, and it was like one of the most... Uh, morose god i yeah Jesus. i don't even know how to describe it it was i was just like i was shaken and i was very confused at you know i found myself in a mall um it's
0: just, you know s- sitting in a dying mall w- watching a a forever 21 be caged up being confronted with detailed information about how to k yourself is um
1: yeah like wafts of summer breeze bath and body works flowing around me it was it was a strange sensory experience (laughs) I don't even know what to say I mean it was it was very sad and I I just uh it's like you know when you like finish a book and I definitely did this with partners too you finish a book and you just sort of like close it and you don't have any thoughts for like five minutes and you just sort of like stare forward and there's like a yeah Notion that you have to move on from something, but you're not really sure what it was because you weren't in it to begin with. You were just a passive observer.
0: But now that it's over, now
1: that it's the the experience is completed itself. Yeah, you have it's... to recalibrate your life with all of the things that you just learned.
0: No, every time you finish a book is like an exercise in like coming to terms with like the 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 fleeting temporality of life. Yeah. It's very sad. <laughs> um, do we want to talk more about this or do we want to move on to, like, technology or, like, final thoughts?
1: Um, I, I think we can move on. I mean, Jerry Hunt's death is is interesting, but honestly, I don't want it to be the thing that, like, defines this conversation. Um, no. I mean, it, in a similar way to, to Forrest Best, it's, like...
0: I mean, especially in this case, because he died when he was fifty; he was very young. Um, yeah, three di- days before three, his three days shy. Um, you know the enormity of his life that he lived in such a short duration, the the poignancy of it, the interesting things he was doing artistically. You know what some might feel is an unconventional part of the world as an unconventional man like that, is more important.
1: Last note on the death thing: I just want to say is that everything we've read about it has been sure to confirm that he did not kill himself out of any sort of like active suicidality or depression it was simply just like an answer to his physical pain
0: yeah no and he partners details that like he you know really for a while it wasn't confirmed that it was cancer he thought it was allergies emphysema and he was holding on until he basically got confirmation that it his life would deteriorate yeah yeah
1: um, I, yeah i should specify not just an answer to physical pain but to physical pain that he knew um he would die from probably very soon
0: and also you know his life with stephen like mm-hmm. what what stephen could endure in terms mm-hmm. of like caretaking yeah um, definitely.
1: well i think we want to talk a little bit about what we think the more contemporary applications of hunt's work are now um and I feel like there are a lot of things we could have said about his career specifically. There are a lot of names we could have said. Um, he had a very far-reaching grasp. He met a lot of people in his time, um, including like a lot of other Texas-based musicians, some of them being like Philip Crum or uh, Robert Sheff, who is also known as Blue Jean Tyranny, who is one of my personal favorite musicians in the world. Um, And he's from San Antonio, which I didn't even know. Yeah, I didn't even know that until after I, like, fell in love with his music. He referred to the Cube as a voodoo hood. Yeah. In in one of the texts that we read. Um, Yeah, so there's... It it just didn't really feel like the correct format for us to try to explain all of that to you. Like, what year, what performance happened and who he was doing it with. Because he had so many collaborators um, and so many people that he was in the same orbit with. Yeah. But we did make a playlist, uh, to try to give an idea of like who was making music at that time, who was not necessarily all Texas artists, I don't think, but just people who were sort of like, yeah, just revolving around the same ideas. Like experimental composers, aleatoric Mm -hmm. composers, um,
0: uh, Patricia Olivares. Yeah. Terry Riley, Mm -hmm. John Cage, of course. Um, yeah. You know, pe- people of that caliber, Philip Glass, even, mm-hmm. um, who uh, all of those people performed at the New Music um, Festival, n- mm-hmm. New New Music America Festival that I think lasted like 10 years in 1980, along with um, Jerry Hunt. And right. we could have a whole other conversation about the music industry and how it changed during this time. And, y- mm-hmm. you know, uh, Jerry Hunt had a lot of interesting things to say about it, if you look into it. But, you know, there's a lot of resources on the official website if you're if you want to dig into that more we also forgot to say this is kind of a big deal you know considering you know as we're talking about the importance of his life and everything he did uh, within its short duration but he um, started a record label uh, from at first from his house in Dallas and then at the far- his family's farm in Canton um, which is funny because it's like this like aleatoric experimental Composer album of like Texas artists kind of doing a similar thing or an adjacent thing to him, and he released a lot of his work through it. Um, Lattice, one of his most famous works. Mm-hmm. Um, Have what you I've listened th- to it? Yeah, it's very si- jarring. jarring and syncopated. And yeah. if I'm being honest, a lot of Jerry Hunt's work gives me anxiety, but I can oh, still for d- sure. I can you know that but you guys are
1: gonna love this playlist.
0: Yeah, you guys should drink a bunch of uh, Red Bulls. Mm-hmm. Or, um, And, you know, really hap- work yourself up into a state But I just wanted to quickly mention some of the other artists Who um, were out on this label You can buy it on being camp, I think uh, Jerry Willingham, Philip Crum uh, James Fulkerson, Larry Austin Derry John Mizell, B.L. LaCerta um, Rodney Washeka II You know, uh, chart toppers like those guys um, i really like larry austin listen i did listen to larry austin nice. I, I he had like the most approachable name too i'm like larry austin sounds like a country singer he, he doesn't but like i that yeah. made me listen to him over some of the others yeah
1: lots of really fun guys on the texas music playlist quite like them
0: yeah so we'll um i'll include the link in the episode description and then on our social media um yeah should we move on
1: yeah let's talk about what what all of this means um you know this was largely all done 40 50 years ago um all of hunt's technology all of his commentary on technology obviously we are in a a very different point now Um, to go back to something from the beginning excerpt of the obituary camille read in the middle of the episode hunt is using shamanism as a cultural precedent for the agents of modern technology um Which in some way seems kind of optimistic to me. And the omnipresence of technology and the way it affects our lives seems to be a commonly negative thing. And I do fundamentally believe that it is. But using shamanism as the model for interacting with technology makes me feel that the magic innate to humanity is not lost in technology. It's just sort of found in new places or on maps still being drawn, right? Yeah. Um,
0: Which can be little scary but also possibly hopeful and yeah generative
1: yeah um i've enjoyed thinking about yeah like hunts hunts relation to that and how we use technology now and who's behind it um and also a question i wrote down is is if we embrace this do we have to do it in a way that feels crowley and through some sort of decadence or or tendency towards artificiality um that's interesting
0: well when i was thinking about kind of new permutations of this like outside of music i thought
1: of like chat gbt which is of course hot button a demon in the computer topic.
0: well yeah it's like you know at best an maybe th- in the that's the thing at best it's a way to interface with angels at worst it's like a sinister demiurge it's gonna kill you it, that like will ensnare us forever or humanity forever um yeah i have no clue what that is or what that means and i've used it to write a few cover letters um <laughs> the, the the base of them i've modified them obviously um so you know it's it's a it's a tool but in in, in terms of like what it is existentially i don't know and nobody know knows um but i but i think the fact that y- you know you could say that like the utopic promise of the machine um, which is something you know in the 80s there's all these emerging technologies and music you know there's a lot of promise it's the future of it jerry talks about it it's offering you a solution it could be the gateway to the kingdom of of heaven or information it could offer universal wisdom that like people like john d were seeking um yeah and it you know maybe there's we'll we'll be okay
1: yeah i don't know maybe there needs to be a more well, I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. I was going to say maybe there needs to be a more like sanctimonious, uh, approach <laughs> to using chat GPT. Cause I was thinking about John D and his, his little like study where he would conduct his conversations. I think he had, he had built like a little prayer room outside of it. Um, so that he could uninterrupted pray and get himself into the mindset, um, and him doing that also sort of like ushered in a new attitude from the angels from my understanding like there was i read something that said he he had like two huge sets of doors that uh, opened to the study and he had to keep them both closed to keep all of the noise out because he lived in a very very busy house and in one of his angelic conversations the angels told him that he left a door open oh. so it's like do we just have to adjust our attitudes and we'll I mean we literally do because it's like a feedback loop but <laughs> it's all <laughs> I don't know I it,
0: it feels like it's I mean it's already happening
1: yeah um, I don't know I, I I guess I didn't really have a good point in saying any of that
0: I no no I mean it's I think it's relevant I mean I think it's like there is a it's a system it's like a technology in, you know that, like, is able to, like, conjure this, like, information that might be, like, the the truth or something, and, like, maybe, you know, and I think that's what John D was getting at, and I, you know, maybe through his, like, way of programming these, like, musical technologies, Jerry Hunt, um, <laughs> maybe he was trying to kind of, like, make us think about that. Yeah. In our our connection with it. um, In conjuring these Enochian entities and his uh, strange and uh, frightful installations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to... It's hard to not, like, let the internet or any sort of usage of technology devalue things, you know? Because it's like... If you meet someone online or something it feels inorganic or like i don't know if if the algorithm brings something towards you it feels like you didn't really uh that's interesting
0: yeah it feels like different forces than like running into somebody at like a a bookstore and dropping your books
1: and they pick all your books up and
0: you know and then you you kind of your skin grazes each other casually just for a moment and then you feel the spark of the future it yeah. does it feels but then when you're fed something in your feed it's like well this is kind of perhaps programmed through this similar mechanisms um as fate and yeah but will. i don't want it because i know that it's programmed by like some egghead and like a
1: like brooklyn
0: and like some loft bread brick bear yeah. space um yeah i don't know i mean my instinct is to be upset
1: by it i don't i think we lean towards a lot of it maybe i mean i definitely don't like i i try not to i i do dislike i feel fine if not a little bit disturbed by the way that technology plays a part in my life now like i know that i'm on the internet too much and i wish that i wasn't and that's something that i at points in my life have changed and it hasn't been super hard for me so like i know that I'm not necessarily in too deep or anything, but I also feel that, you know, we, we need it in a sense and like, there's no use in kidding yourself. Like, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this right now have probably been brought towards it by some sort of algorithm or like, Oh yeah. Um, so it, it's certainly helpful in some senses. It's just like also, scary because you don't really know what what parts of yourself are being in the same way like in any sort of conversation like in the way that Jerry Hunt was saying that this technology the electronics are a simulation of human consciousness and perception and being perceived it's like you don't really know what parts of yourself yeah have brought this other thing towards you even in just a casual conversation even in you know someone talking to you for the first time and you not understanding what it is they saw in you it's like the same thing happens online just in a very different way where you you're not really sure like what to thank or what to get mad at
0: you 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 ultimately have no control over how you're metabolized and in either sphere Um, yeah and it's yeah i don't know it's i yeah i i agree i enjoy the internet and i'm fine with its presence in my life but it does it 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 unveils a new like demonological matrix that like is harder to understand outside like outside of like a traditional like religious yeah framework of viewing such things as good and
1: evil and uh nefarious (laughs) entities and uh when we when we went to the conference the archives of the impossible conference um we've talked about this a little bit before but there is a man there doing a talk on sigils, and mm-hmm. he used, like, an online sigil generator to generate a sigil for, um, for, I don't know, he was, like, I want to do well on this yeah. talk today, and, and made a sigil for it, and, like, displayed it on the top of his PowerPoint while he was talking to us, and it made me feel, like, insane.
0: Yeah, no, because it's, like, the, you're, he's, like, studying this ancient thing, and it's, like, well,
1: yeah, it's, it's so easily hold up just like a right he's clearly like read tomes and like leafed through uh aged books with with cracked spines and yellowed pages it's
0: like but and then it's like the like the rap name generator (laughs) yeah um it
1: feels it feels odd for sure but your alchemist's name is is the first letter of the street you grew up on plus your pet's name like i don't know it's (laughs) also like is also like a credit card scam yeah (laughs) um i don't know it's just like all digestible in a way that makes me feel confused because what's sacred is sacred in a way where it's like okay yes everyone does in some way deserve access to the sacred but it's like you want to work for it like you want to work have some sort of material proof that you've worked for the connections that you have. You want
0: some stake, personal stake in it to give it meaning Yeah, exactly. to you. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that applies with many things on the internet, research and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I do think it, sure, like, sa- sacred, um, y- you know, like, very, like, you, you can have experiences like that online i'm i think it has, yeah yeah of course you know my my grandpa goes to a uh, zoom church i
1: had a i had a really nice experience in a zoom church one day really yeah it was strange it was uh for a universalist unitarian church and they had I don't really know what it was, but they had, like, a separate square dedicated to a candle. And it made me laugh. But everyone was, like, really sweet. And they appreciated the medium and were able to do it in a way that felt like... I was still kind of like, you know, I'm programmed to hate this. And I do in a way, but all of you are nice. And the background of technology is just the people who create it and use it. And I guess that's, like, the most important thing sometimes. You can't always... I don't know. I I have a tendency towards criticism and negativity when it comes to the future and advancements and stuff, and um, that can be good, but it can also be, it can also take me out of just letting things happen or enjoying them. Yeah.
0: Like, I mean, I think we can probably, like, just as we can powerfully manifest a sigil online or otherwise with our minds, you know, we can will ourselves to like move through the portal of the screen and have some like human experience. Yeah. But probably like, I don't know, biologically you're lacking on like physical contact or like physical communing or something. I don't know. Um, Do you have any other thoughts about, you know, the mystical in art, um, you know, technology, Jerry
1: Hunt, Anything of that nature? Um, I guess not. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think art is like an inherently mystical practice. I think it's good to talk about it too because it's sort of an isolating thing. But I feel like when you really allow yourself to be turned off or something, or or to like turn away from yourself while you're creating art and just letting. I don't know something like come over you um when I do I mean obviously I'm not I'm not like doing it in a way that feels mystical to me but it does feel like being guided in some way like when I do my little uh black and white drawings with the, the cross hatching I will just sort of like come to and realize that I've made like thousands of marks on the page and not realize like where they've begun and ended or something and it's it's like satisfying to me to be able to do that without having to think about the process of doing it or something it's just like using myself as a reflection of something else and using that as a reflection of me thinking more about the spaces and the way that they define each other than I am thinking about myself and the way that I'm defining them um, yeah. yeah I don't know it's good it's good good thing to think about we've covered a lot (sighs) we Um, have it's been a it's been a lovely day we've been recording for like four hours somehow
0: you know when we're dealing with so much information sometimes it takes a while to process figure out heads or tails um yeah um i guess things to leave you with i mean definitely do some more research on jerry hunt on your own like we said, we left out a lot of stuff. Um, you might be charmed by him. You might, you know, find a new beloved artist in your. You might have a new beloved artist in your arsenal.
1: Yeah, if you're if you're like super into synths, uh, you should get into Jerry Hunt and. <laughs> if you like noise yeah and you should make sense of him in a way that we're incapable because we don't know machines and you should yeah i
0: think probably there's means. some people listening here are very angry with us for
1: and if you are that's okay and you can you can correct us and i won't be um yeah we want to learn
0: yeah. more but we did we did our best um yeah just another freak in in texas devoting his life to love and beauty <laughs> And those are the guys it's we the most love. Freakish thing at all. Uh, how how yeah? Observe.
1: It's goofy. Um, um, we have some really exciting things coming up. Um, I I won't give away too much, but I'm going on Sunday to a cemetery for a. It's not it's not just sunny cemetery. It's very special. Um, that's gonna be re- that's gonna be really exciting. It's We're trying to open this up for more sensitive and personal discussions. Yeah. Um, I think we shine when we're allowed to show our emotions. We like to emote and <laughs> have sensory experiences. Um. Anyway, um, this has been lovely. Thank you for your time, Camille.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> Thanks for coming over. Thanks for talking about all this with me.
1: Yeah. Um, we hope you all have
0: a great time whenever you're listening to this. Maybe you'll be listening to this in the shadow of a, uh, you know, chained up great american cookie stand um while you're like running an errand
1: um maybe you'll find yourself in front of a cage for every 21 um maybe you'll be at like an experimental music concert listening to this in your headphones maybe you yourself are a man between the ages of 19 and 35 and, uh,
0: searching for an older man to to project your own to
1: teach you how to <laughs> life onto you um, all right um, my name is Faith. Okay. My name is Camille. Thanks for listening to Texas Overture. God, God bless be back you. Back soon.
0: Bye.